Stranger Podcast. My name is Michael Hendricks, and I will be your host. This podcast aims to take a deep look at one of Chicago's most famous crimes, a case of murder from 1920 that centered around the Ragged Stranger and Carl Wanderer. This episode is the fourth of an eight-part series, available for download or to stream on the Ragged Stranger blog at chicagonow.com. On the blog, there is an easy email subscription sign-up if you'd like to have this podcast emailed to you upon each new episode being aired. After Carl Wanderer had confessed to the murder of his pregnant wife, their unborn child, and the ragged stranger, public scorn and condemnation of him was rife. When word came out that he was dating a 17-year-old girl, both before and after his wife's murder, he was the most reviled man in town, though that only increased his appeal to a portion of society. Two days after Wanderer confessed to his crime, 17-year-old Julia Schmidt, at her mother's urging, went to the police and told of how she and Carl had been on several dates before and after his wife's murder. I went out with Carl several times before this murder happened. Also, I went out with him afterwards. I had not the slightest idea he was married. I thought of him as a fine young man and liked him very much. When he took me home, he called me sweetheart and kissed me. I still thought him a hero when I read of the shooting in the papers. The fact that he was married was a great shock to me. I was greatly disappointed with him. He continued to write and became more affectionate in the tone of his letters. Reporters raced to Carl in his jail cell to get his statement now that his affair with his young girlfriend had become public knowledge. I'm sorry these people got brought into it. I liked Julia Schmidt, but we were just friends. She was just like a lot of the other girls who came into the butcher shop. I just happened to like her better than the rest. Liked to go out with her. Liked a few of the others, too, though. Reporters quizzed Carl on why he hadn't told the police or the state's attorney about Julia during his confession. The reporters wrote that Wanderer, the wife slayer, affected a noble air and throwing out his chest slightly said, Oh, I'm not that kind of a fellow. I didn't want to draw her into this. I never told her I was going to marry her. I had no bad intentions. She was only a side issue. I was tired of married life. Why, I never took that kid seriously. I tell you, she meant nothing to me. What a sucker I was. Just think of all the money I spent on that girl. Owing to Wanderer's incredible unpopularity in Chicago, it took over a week of jury selection and needing to call in two special veneers of 100 men each to finally get 12 jurors who claimed impartiality. With the jury finally seated, the trial of Carl Wanderer got underway to great fanfare on October 13th. Murder fans were lined up and down Hubbard Street outside the courthouse hoping to get a seat at the trial. Ben Heck set the stage in that day's Chicago Daily News. He opened his article about a young woman attempting to gain access to the trial. The flapper was all excited. Her silver toque 
with the blue bird of paradise feather slanting westward from its top, bobbed before a red-faced bailiff outside Judge Pam's courtroom. I must get in. I don't care to hear any of the evidence. All I want is a look at Carl. A few minutes later, the young boulevard siren had wedged herself in among the hundreds of kindred souls, lining the walls of the courtroom, all looking at Carl, or rather, at the back of his head. The prosecutors were confident as they entered the courtroom, as well they should have been. The defendant had confessed, the evidence all pointed in his direction, and he had declared himself sane, aware, and regretful several times to several different people. Assistant State's Attorney John Kristalski was sitting second chair to Assistant State's Attorney James O'Brien, who had strode into court wearing his customary red necktie. The tie was a grim nod to his nickname, Ropes, which had been earned for the multitudes of men he had convicted and had sentenced to death by hanging on the gallows. For the defense, Attorney George Gunther would be assisting Attorney Benedict Short without the assistance of their client. Carl had spent the past couple months so uninterested in the defense that was being prepared by his attorneys that they completely left him out of any discussions and rarely spoke to him. All rise. Assistant State's Attorney John Prostalski told the jury during opening remarks, Our testimony will show that he had gone out with a girl named Julia Schmidt, that he kissed her and made love to her, that at one time he had proposed taking her to Crown Point. For a little context into 1920 Chicago, that Carl made love to her simply means that he wooed her or flirted with her. Nothing as physical as today's meaning. The state produced a number of witnesses to testify around the night of June 21st, the $1,500 Ruth withdrew from the bank, and all the mundane matters in Carl and Ruth's lives. While important testimony, it thus far lacked the fireworks that the murder fans were looking for. Assistant State's Attorney Prostalski called policeman John Nape to the stand as he was the first policeman on the scene. I am a police officer of the city of Chicago, and was such on the night of June 21, 1920, in charge of the patrol wagon, 32nd Precinct. On that night, I received a call about a mile and a half from the station. I went there in an automobile in about five minutes. I went up the steps there, and the door that led from the porch into the vestibule was closed, and I had to squeeze myself in. There was a man lying on the floor with his shoulders against the door. When I got in, I asked Wanderer if the man was shot, and he says yes. I says, who shot him? And he says, I did. I says, what for? And he says, stick up. I noticed the revolvers lying in the southeast corner of the vestibule. The barrels were facing the north, one of the handles to the east and one to the west. I says, whose guns are they? He says, one belongs to me, one belongs to this man. I says, how can you tell your gun? He says, I've got initials scratched into the handle. I said, show me your initials on that gun. He turned the handle of it and showed me three initials, LSB, on the butt. The man I found in the vestibule, I said to him, what is your name? And he stuck out his tongue and tried to speak. I asked him, wanderer, if the man lying on the floor was a soldier, and he said he didn't know. He said, I used to be a lieutenant. I said, do you know him? And he says, no. Moving on to the guns, Assistant State's Attorney Prostalski said, if it pleases the court, 
I want to enter this revolver as People's Exhibit Number 6, the Colt 45 revolver with serial number C2282 was then entered into evidence. The gun's sales history was traced from the Colt company to a Chicago company, Von Legerke and Antoine, and finally to Fred Wanderer, Carl's cousin. On the witness stand, Carl's cousin testified, My name is Fred Wanderer. I visited Carl Wanderer the second or third day after Ruth was killed. I had a conversation with him. I asked him, Carl, did you use my gun? He said yes. I had a conversation with him about a week later at my home. Carl said they were going to trace the gun and I would probably be arrested. Inside the courtroom was not the only place where drama was occurring, as one particular night at the jail would attest. Long before the words would be uttered by Elwood Blues, being on a mission from God would be the reason behind a woman's attempts to avenge Ruth and murder Carl. Esther Bernstein was taken into custody one day after twice attempting to break into the Cook County Jail to kill Carl. Under questioning, she repeated the mantra that she was on a mission from God and that Wanderer must die. The police found no weapons on her, and confident that she would not be able to succeed in breaking into the jail, they released her without arrest or any charges being filed. The sexy testimony that the court fans had been waiting for was the testimony of the other woman. Julia Schmidt was due on the stand to tell the court of their courtship. Assistant State's Attorney O'Brien opened the questioning of the young girl. Julia testified she was 17 when Carl had started to woo her by taking her to Riverview Park in taxis. When is the first time you went there? Three weeks before, before his wife's death? From then until the time his wife was killed, how often were you out with him? Four times. Up to June 21st, did Wanderer tell you he was married? No. Before June 21st, in any of his trips, did the defendant kiss you? Yes, sir, she said. Attorney Ben Short, during his cross-examination, sought to glean a sliver of testimony that was not damning to his client. He at all times treated you properly? Yes, he was always very nice. He never treated you indecently? No, she replied, with a smile on her lips and another glance at the jury. The next day, the courtroom was especially packed, knowing that important testimony was on the way. The trial had slowly started to live up to the advanced billing imagined by the murder fans. And with the state nearing the end of its presentation of evidence, the fans knew that the testimony of Carl's confession was sure to come. Sergeant Grady was the first on the stand and led the jury through the hows and whys of Wanderer being taken into custody. Grady then recounted how Carl had come up with his cockamamie story about wanting to take as a souvenir the gun that had killed his wife. Those in the courtroom found the testimony to paint Carl as either a liar or a weirdo. Many thought both. Lieutenant Loftus was recalled to recount how Carl's confession came about. When I first interviewed Wanderer the night of the murder, I thought he had performed a laudable act. I did not believe him guilty of any offense at that time. I changed my opinion when I discovered to my own satisfaction that the story about the guns was false. Under cross-examination, Loftus testified, I don't know who ordered Wanderer's arrest. The homicide squad brought him into my station sometime in the evening to identify some guns. That was on the night of July 6th. I don't know how long he had slept any night between the 6th and the 9th. When you went into the state's attorney's office, about 3.30, did 
Did anybody tell you that he'd been questioned and pumped by dozens of men? They did not. You knew he'd been under arrest for three or four days, didn't you? I understood he was. Coroner Hoffman then took the stand and read every question and answer from Carl's confession to the court. He then testified of the findings, but not the circumstances or timing, of his coroner's inquest. In finishing testifying about the confession, the coroner confirmed that Carl had signed and initialed every page and swore them to be accurate, given freely and truthfully, with no undue harm being bestowed upon him. Thus far in the trial, the defense had been mostly quiet, but with few objections here or there. But when defense attorney Ben Short cross-examined the coroner, the attorney laid the groundwork for his defense argument that the confession was coerced from Carl. Didn't you kick and punch him? No, sir. Didn't you and your men call him vile names? No, sir. Didn't you tell Wanderer to come across that his wife's spirit was hovering over him and would please her if he told the truth? No, sir. Isn't it a fact that he was almost in a state of collapse the night he confessed? No. The coroner was becoming more exasperated with the line of questioning he faced, and his answers became louder in nature and more testy in tone. Hoffman stated that Carl was not mistreated at any time. In a show of courtroom theater, Attorney Short showed the coroner a sketch from a daily newspaper that depicted Carl being questioned by the coroner. The sketch was of a chubby Hoffman, his sleeves rolled up, shaking a meaty finger in Carl's face. The text beneath it read, The artist's sketch was made before Lieutenant Wanderer, verging on a collapse, confessed he killed his wife after hiring the ragged stranger to play the part of the robber. Wanderer is sitting in the witness chair in the criminal court building. Before him is Coroner Hoffman, leading the grilling which gained the confession. The coroner scoffed at the sketch and again denied mistreating the defendant. In an era when reporters frequently worked alongside the police, two local Chicago Beat reporters took the stand to recount their parts in the investigation of Carl. Charles MacArthur, a reporter for the Chicago Herald Examiner, and Benson Pratt, a reporter for the Chicago American, were called to testify for the prosecution about their interactions with Carl both before and after his confession. Chicago Daily News reporter Ben Hacht was never called to testify about having any role in solving the crime. After having presented multiple motives that included money and another woman, having told of Carl's desire to return to the Army, and having had the defendant's own signed confession read aloud to the jury, the prosecution rested its case. Courthouse lawyers who had been following the trial all felt that Wanderer was most likely going to wind up swinging from the gallows. The Carl Wanderer defense opened with his father, Charlie Wanderer, having the opportunity to do his part to save his son's life. The line of questioning confirmed that the defense believed one of their best options was to present Wanderer as insane. My name is Charles Wanderer. I'm a butcher and have been in that business for the last 30 years. I'm the father of Carl Wanderer, the defendant in this case. My wife was Anna Anderson, and we were married in Chicago in 1892. My wife died May 5th, 1915. Charlie Wanderer was first asked to tell about the mental issues on his side of the family. I had seven brothers and five sisters. I had a brother named William. He died a few weeks ago in an insane asylum in Overbrook, New Jersey. He was the father of Fred Wanderer, 
who earlier testified in this case. When questioned about his wife going crazy, the testimony was difficult for the humble butcher. Asked how his wife had passed away, he answered meekly, she killed herself. Yes, but how did she kill herself? Asked attorney Benedict Short. The elder wanderer didn't answer at first. Unable to get the words out, the old man snipped two fingers like scissors and then tipped his head back, exposing his neck and jugular vein and drew them across his exposed throat. She killed herself by cutting her throat with scissors, right in here. Her health for 10 years before that had been very poor. She was sick with melancholy, and she had an imagination that something was bothering her. She swallowed a lot of matches once before, and drank kerosene. She ate sulfur, and in 1915, about a month before she killed herself, she turned on the gas. She ate sulfur very often. Based upon the facts I've related, I have an opinion as to whether, at the time of her death, my wife was sane or insane. That opinion is that she was insane for about 10 years. Attorney Short went on to ask the father of all the different queer tendencies Carl had displayed growing up. He was always doing something. We all lived together, my two daughters, my son-in-law and Carl. One day, Carl packed up a suitcase and went away without even saying a word. He was gone four weeks and came back and wouldn't talk to me for a while or say where he'd been. Then after a while, he did the same thing. We slept in the same room, but he wouldn't even say goodbye. And then again, he came back and never said a word. In the shop, he was always breaking things on purpose. Once, he hit all the corned beef, and when I went to pull out the drawer where it was, I gave a hard pull and fell over. The father recounted how his son had taken a broken meat hook and returned it to the normal place like nothing had happened. The elder butcher went to hang a side of meat on the hook, and wound up tumbling to the floor after the broken meat hook had given way. <laughs> the jury was joined in their laughter by Carl, the first outward sign of emotion he had shown since the trial had started. Whether the jury was connecting the dots of going from corned beef prankster to insane killer was dubious. The snickers of the court fans suggested otherwise. They laughed it up good when testimony was presented that Carl must be insane because he'd ordered four pies for the four members of his wedding party the night of his and Ruth's nuptials. Prosecutors sought to object to the dessert testimony as they implied that perhaps the pies were personal pies. No, returned the testimony. They were four whole pies for four people. <laughs> Crazy. Both of Carl's sisters would also testify to their brother's insanity, with twin sister Laura saying Carl was crazy because he was surly and he would talk to himself. Hattie, without saying how it reflected on herself, said her brother Carl must be crazy simply because his mother had been. Unintentional levity was brought to the trial by the testimony of Hattie's husband Bernard, who testified about Carl's poker tactics. When we played Penny Annie, he bet his stack of chips on a pair of nines. He would get up and walk around his chair, a very restless man. You think Wanderer is crazy because he walked around his chair? Because he bluffed on a pair of nines? Yes, he was very restless in his chair. Going all in on a pair of nines. Circling his chair for good luck or to rattle others at the table. Insane. 
In an attempt to professionally establish Carl's insanity, the first of many alienists were called to offer expert testimony. Dr. William Hickson, head of the Chicago Municipal Psychopathic Laboratory, the doctor who had originally examined Carl and made the latent homosexuality diagnosis while with Ben Hecht, made another examination of Wanderer in the county jail on September 2nd. Dr. Hickson testified to some of the medical tests he had put Wanderer through. I put to him the standardized questions known throughout the world as tests for insanity. When I came to the absurdity test, he answered intelligently three out of five questions. These were, I have three brothers, one Paul, another Ernest, and myself. Wanderer smiled and said that was impossible. I asked him to point out the incongruity of such statements as these. The body of a woman was found cut up into 18 pieces. The police believe it was a suicide. Wanderer speculated a few minutes on this and then said it would be impossible. A man was struck by a streetcar and killed. At the hospital, the doctor said he had a chance to recover. Wanderer could not see any absurdity in statements of this kind, which usually are detected by children 9 or 10 years old. I subjected him to the sentence test, but he fell down significantly on that too. He could not complete such obvious sentences as, The blank is off the track. The cow gives blank. Hickson said his diagnosis was that Carl had been insane since birth. Shock and excitement went through the courtroom when attorney Gunther called the defense's next witness. Carl Wanderer was going to testify in his own defense. In testifying about entering the vestibule, Wanderer told, My wife said, I'll turn on the light. And as she did, the stranger started shooting. Did you shoot? Yes, I shot in the direction of the man. Did you shoot your wife? No, sir. Tell the jury the circumstances surrounding your so-called confession. Did Sergeant Norton say anything to you after you were locked up in a cell at the Hudson Avenue station? Yes, he called me out and said I shot my wife because she had a man in the hall with her. How did he say it? I don't like to use that sort of language. Go ahead. The jury has to know the exact words. The defense attorney insisted that the court needed to hear the testimony and assured Carl that any inappropriate language would not reflect on him. Carl said the sergeant suggested, in terms not fit for newspaper print, his wife was having an affair with a ragged stranger, and Carl had found them in a compromising situation. To which Carl told police, I said, I would rather say I'd kill my wife than have such things said about her. How were you treated the night of July 7th? I was given no sleep. Every time I'd start to drop off to sleep, Detective Sergeant Grady would enter and say, You shot your wife. You know it. Once he pointed over to a corner of the cell and said, There are the wife and child you killed. Do you see them? I told him I did not. What happened on the morning of July 8th? Grady came in and stomped on my bare feet. He said, you might as well confess. We're going to keep you in here until you do. And on July 9th, did you see Sergeant Grady on July 9th? Yes, he came into my cell that morning again while I was in my underwear and dressing. He stomped on my feet, then he beat me up. Did you save the underwear that you wore that day? Yes, I had it until a few days ago in my cell. Then it disappeared. Was there blood on it? which came from your body when you were beaten? Yes. How many times did Coroner Hoffman put his fist in your face? 
several times. What did he say? He said, Do you know the spirit of your wife is floating over you and that you have a wife and a baby in heaven? How long did Coroner Hoffman keep on talking? About three hours. I was taken over to the state's attorney's office. There, for three hours, Coroner Peter Hoffman and members of the state's attorney's office kept bullying me. Hoffman said I had hired the stranger and killed my wife. He shoved his fist in my face and kept suggesting this to me. He told me it was because I wanted to get back in the army. I told him I could have done that without killing my wife. He asked about the $1,500, and I explained that I could have drawn that out without killing anyone. After you made this confession, did you say you wanted to hang and have it over with? I did. Why did you say that? I was overcome. I hadn't had any sleep. I'd been beaten, and I was willing to say anything. Why did you make this confession? And why did you later tell newspaper men that it was correct? I made it so I could get some rest, and because they had kept suggesting to me that it happened that way. I told the newspaper men it was right because Assistant State's Attorney Pristalski told me that wouldn't do me any harm. The prosecution requested and received a brief recess before they began their cross-examination of Wanderer. Assistant State's Attorney O'Brien and Pristalski had not expected Carl to testify. The two lawyers huddled together and planned a quick strategy before court was back in session and Wanderer before the jury. Pristalski asked Carl about speaking with Coroner Hoffman at the coroner's inquest 48 hours after his confession. Had Wanderer not confided with the coroner that he had killed his wife? I may have. You had had plenty of rest then, and were in a composed frame of mind? Yes, sir. Carl was asked several quick questions about his confession. The quick pace and easy answers put Wanderer into a mode of self-confidence. He kicked his feet up on the bar of the witness stand, out of sight of Judge Pam. Do you recall telling Dr. William Crone that you had killed your wife? I remember talking to him, but I remember that I thought he was an official. A few snickers from the murder fans caused Judge Pam to sit forward on his bench. He looked down into the witness box and noticed that Wanderer had reclined in his chair and was resting his feet on the bar. Put your feet down! This is a courtroom, Judge Pam bellowed. You talked to Dr. Crone, Pristalski continued. Yes, sir. Did you tell him you shot and killed your wife? I don't think I did. When you were being questioned by the authorities, was this question asked? Realizing the situation, do you wish to make a statement regarding the death of your wife? On your request. I'm asking you if that question was asked and you made that answer. I, I, I think you told me to. And was this question asked? Everything you are saying is said of your own free will and without force being used or promises being made. It was all forced out of me. I'm asking you if that question was asked and if you made that answer. It may have been. I don't know. You said Coroner Hoffman shook his fist in your face. Yes, he struck me several times also. The prosecutor pulled the confession from his files and read aloud where Carl had affirmed that this confession had been voluntarily given. This confession was voluntary, was it not? No, it was forced out of me. Wanderer stomped his feet for emphasis as he shuffled in his seat. The burst of a temper was the first time the jury had seen this side of the defendant. Did you kill your wife? No, sir. Pressed further about the murder and all Carl would say before court ended for the day, 
is some version of I don't remember or I don't recall. When court reconvened the next day, the courtroom was electric. The trial had now lived up to its billing and had enthralled the murder fans. The number of seats allocated by Judge Pam had come and gone as many snuck in the courtroom past the bailiffs or gone right out and greased the palms of the bailiffs. The court was packed shoulder to shoulder, so much so that Judge Hugo Pam ordered, let no one else in, as Carl returned to the stand. Ben Hecht set the scene for day two of Carl on the stand. An unshaven, cherubic smile, politely elevated eyebrows, and a pair of amused, unblinking eyes greeted Assistant State's Attorney Prostalski from the witness stand as Wanderer took his seat as court reconvened. Prostalski resumed his examination of Carl. Did you ever tell Julia Schmidt that you wanted to go back into the Army? Yes, but after my wife's death. Did you love Julia Schmidt? No. The murder fans murmured at Carl's love denial. The judge admonished the court to act with decorum. You took Miss Schmidt out on several parties, didn't you? Yes, I took her to Riverview Park a few times. Did you ever kiss her? Yes. Did you ever tell Julia Schmidt prior to June 21st that you were married? I didn't say I was or was not. The prosecutors, after lulling Carl into a post-lunch sense of security, came around to a love letter to Julia that Carl had written. The prosecutors confirmed with Carl that while he was being held in police custody for questioning, he had sent a reporter to retrieve the letter from his bedroom. The reporter had been instructed not to read the letter, simply to return it to Carl. But, like the forbidden fruit, the reporter couldn't resist. He read the letter. The reporter then returned the letter, not to Carl, but to his editor, to be printed in the newspaper's front page. You wrote to Miss Schmidt, didn't you? Yes. You wrote her on July 6th, did you? Yes. What did you do with that letter? I tore it up, put it in a book, and placed a book in a bureau drawer. Why did you tear the letter up? I didn't want to send it. Is this a true copy? The prosecutor waved the page in the air as he led it to the witness. No, I can't say. Uh, I don't remember. Did you write the letter as it is written here? Uh, I don't remember. Can you give us any portion of the letter that you did write? No, I, I don't remember. Did you ever see that letter pasted together and in the possession of Lieutenant Norton? Uh, I don't know. I saw a letter in his hand, but uh, I, I can't say that was the one. Well, does this writing look like yours? Mm, something like it. Did you start your letter to her with sweetheart? Uh, I don't remember. Did you say in the letter, sweetheart, I'm lonesome for you? No, I don't think so. Did you not tear up the letter and put the pieces in an envelope? I, I put them in a bureau drawer. Did you talk with Harry Romanoff, a reporter, in reference to the torn letter? Yeah, yeah, I may have. A clipping from a newspaper with a photograph of the love letter was produced and given to Carl by Prostalski. Objection! Attorney Short shouted again. The defense attorney argued that the letter was inadmissible as the original could not be produced. The judge sent the jury back to their chambers and questioned the prosecution about the whereabouts of the original letter. The prosecutors confirmed that the letter had been accidentally lost or destroyed. 
The photograph of the pasted-together letter from the newspaper was shown to Carl, who then stated that the letter was not written by him. The judge ruled that the photo of the letter would not be allowed. The he said, she said testimony came in waves at the rebuttal phase of the trial. Prosecutors called experts of their own that would directly contradict the expert testimony that the defense witnesses had offered. Ruth's family and former army buddies of Carl's were all called to testify that they never had doubts of Carl's sanity. Called for rebuttal, Julia Schmidt, with a somewhat perplexed face, stared back at the prosecuting attorney and his questions. No, Carl never acted strange around me. He kissed me. But that's why he isn't insane. Carl is sane, sane and normal. Ben Hecht again painted the scene. And because so many feminine court fans stared hard at her, Miss Schmidt nervously fingered the long strand of red beads that went around her throat. She wore a soft blue plush hat and a blue serge suit. She is a petite woman, even frail, and the excitement of the cross-examination had brought bright spots to her cheeks. Looking to counter the testimony of the defense alienist that Carl was insane, the prosecution presented to the jury their own expert testimony that obviously came to an alternate conclusion. Assistant State's Attorney O'Brien led the direct examination of alienist Dr. Clarence Neiman. You have observed the defendant in court here, have you? You heard his testimony, watched his actions. Is he afflicted with dementia praecox? He is not. What do you base your opinions on? On his actions, on his testimony. Tell me one thing that makes you believe he is not suffering from dementia praecox. His actions when Sergeant Norton laid the revolvers before him. When the guns were laid before him, he glanced at them, stared a bit, glanced over again, then dropped his eyes and turned away. A dementia praecox patient would not do that, eh? Certainly not. It was a shock. Tell me another thing that makes you so sure. The way he answered the questions convinced me. Wanderer answered the questions that would not hurt him. He answered them quickly. When he was asked a question that would injure his defense, he paused. He seemed uneasy and usually said, I don't know. Anything else? And he always hesitated when driven into a corner. Wouldn't a crazy man hesitate when driven into a corner? No, he wouldn't know about it. The prosecution ended with Dr. William Crone, another alienist, and the final expert to avow that Carl was sane as any man. Relaying his examination of Carl, I gave Wanderer a thorough test on the night of July 12th, and the results of the examination showed me that the man is in his right mind. Wanderer told me that he experienced remorse only one time, and that was when he held the body of his dying wife in his arms, and he heard her last breath. He said that while he was in the picture show with his wife, he had nearly backed out of the plan to murder his wife. But when he came from the theater, he told me he saw the ragged stranger, and this gave him the courage to carry out the deed. When the alienist finished, the testimony phase of the trial was over. Closing arguments were to be heard the following Monday. Attorneys for the prosecution and defense agreed that each side would be allowed five hours for the respective statements and rebuttals. Ropes O'Brien, with a scarlet tie around his neck, gave the closing arguments for the state of Illinois. Carl Wanderer is guilty of the deliberately planned murder of his wife Ruth and the unidentified stranger. The penalty for the crime is prescribed by the law, death. 
This man is coming to you with two pleas for his life, just as he went into that vestibule that night with two guns in his hands. He's going to ask you to believe that he did not kill his wife, or that if he did, he was insane. It is the most atrocious crime in the history of the state, executed willfully, cunningly, and deliberately by that man sitting there. Have you ever heard of a more abandoned or malignant heart than Wanderer exhibited when he killed the young girl who placed her entire confidence in him? She gave him her all, and he took it, even unto death. A murmur went up in the courtroom as the mother of the woman being spoken of in death, Mrs. Eugenia Johnson, collapsed. The trial halted briefly as she regained her faculties and was escorted out of the courtroom. O'Brien resumed. He met Ruth Johnson before he went into the Army. She was 16 years old, trusting, simple, and beautiful. When he came home on a furlough to the Christmas good cheer of 1918, he purchased a diamond ring and placed it on her finger. She promised to wait. After the war, he returned to his former life, that of the butcher, and Ruth was waiting and trusting. They were married October 1st, 1919. Then followed nine months of happiness for the girl. Nine months of ordinary, everyday life. Though far too ordinary and much too everyday for Carl. In May and June of this year, there came into his life that experience that men never forget. The sensation that every father forever remembers. He was going to be a parent. The time when the average man watches every step of his wife, every movement, and exercises every care for her safety. But there was another interest in Wanderer's life at this time. Across the street from his store lived little Julia Schmidt with a sweet face. She came to the store, and his thoughts turned towards her. While he should have been spending his time with Ruth, he was expending his emotions by kissing Julia. He saw a vision of the future. It included army life and Julia. But in that vision was no trace of Ruth, who was soon to be a mother. Ruth must die. Kisses for Julia bullets for Ruth. Then, one day, as he was slicing a steak, Wanderer thought of killing Ruth. That very night, he laid plans to secure a gun. For three days, he studied and schemed. On Monday, he went downtown and met the poor boob stranger. That night, he got the gun from Fred Wanderer. That night, Carl took Ruth to the movie. They saw a play of Jack London's, and right here, I say, gentlemen, no animal of the forest or jungle ever treated its mate in the fiendish manner Carl Wanderer treated his wife. Once, during the moving picture, as the clock was ticking away towards the time she should die, he thought perhaps he ought not to kill Ruth. At nine o'clock, they rose to go. Outside, he regained his courage, did this two-gun murder. Ruth entered the vestibule of their home. The stranger entered, and utters his lines as coached by Wanderer. Then, that man there, placed one gun at his wife, and pointed another at the stranger, and started shooting. His wife fell, the stranger fell, but the stranger seemed not to die. Then, fully aware of what the man might tell if he lived, and unmindful of the suffering of his young wife, he dropped to the floor and hammered the man's head against a hard floor. For dramatic effect, Assistant State's Attorney O'Brien had gotten down on the floor of the courtroom. On hands and knees, he pounded his fist against the wooden floor while staring at the jury. 
His red tie dangled for effect as he did so. Satisfied that the stranger was dead, the wanderer bent over Ruth. He placed his lips against hers as she cried, Carl, my baby is dead. Can this be true? And he sealed her life with a kiss. Then, as she was making her last frantic efforts to breathe, even as his lips pressed hers, he tried to slip the diamond ring from her finger, so that he might slip it onto the finger of sweet-faced Julia. He tried to make the newspapers and his friends believe he was a hero. He wanted it believed that he had shot the man who had shot his wife. He is an actor, and he is acting now, but he is a coward. Had he shot himself that night, he might have gotten away with this horrible crime. He might have made the police believe, but he was too yellow for that. He had the load of a double murder on his mind, and it conquered him. He told it in the state's attorney's office, and now he asked you to call him insane and not believe the confession he signed. The man who killed his wife, an unborn babe, that's the kind of man he is. See his calm face? An actor. But a yellow coward and a murderer. Splitting up the time allotted to the defense, attorney Benedict Short offered his closing thoughts to the jury. We have three positions in this defense. First, Carl Wanderer did not kill his wife. Second, his story of her death was secured only by the beating of the homicide squad. And third, if he did kill her, he was not mentally perfect, but an insane man suffering from dementia praecox. There is more than a reasonable doubt as to the guilt of the defendant, and because of this, we ask you to acquit him of the crime. George Gunther made these opening remarks for the defense. We will show you, gentlemen, that there are laws to protect the rights of a man accused of crimes, laws to meet such an emergency as the one now before you, wherein a man, weak-minded from birth, is browbeaten by the police and officials of the state's attorney's office into confessing a crime of which he is innocent. Carl Wanderer did not commit a crime because he is insane. He confessed to a crime he had not committed because he is insane. They took that young man to a dark cell in the basement of detention home number one. The cell was dark and damp. A hard board bench served as a bed and a chair. Sergeant Norton, never once holding a thought that the man might be innocent, stayed with him for two days and two nights, never letting up on the question, why did you kill her? That burly police officer, anxious for promotion and additional pay, slapped the defendant every time he dozed and finally had to be relieved by brother police officers who continued for him. Then they took Wanderer to the state's attorney's office and continued the grind there. Coroner Hoffman took up the brutal and merciless third degree. He shook his fist in Wanderer's face and demanded a confession. O'Brien, Prostalski, and Hoffman, a mental wrecking crew, kept hounding the boy all day. They suggested time and again the story contained in the confession. Finally, Wanderer, desperate, alone, without friends in a room filled with enemies, mad from loss of sleep, he let them have their way. He confessed to anything they wanted him to say. Gunther then recited the facts of a 101-year-old case, the trial of Stephen and Jesse Bourne for the murder of Russell Colvin, a case often cited to rebut prosecutors who claim that innocent people don't confess. Gunther attempted to show 
how Carl's weakened mind left him open to the suggestions put to him by his many interrogators, who then gleaned the false confession through underhanded means. Wanderer isn't telling the truth in his confession. He is answering as men stronger than himself desire him to answer. His mind is in their hands. They twist his thought to respond as they desire. This man, weakened, diseased from birth, beaten and cajoled for days, gives in. Right in time for lunch and the noon recess, the defense of Carl Wanderer concluded. The jury would again hear from the prosecution after the recess, and were told to expect to begin their deliberations near supper time. Assistant State's Attorney O'Brien made the final remarks to the jury near the three o'clock hour. Send this cowardly, contemptible wretch who deliberately and cunningly took the lives of his young, trusting wife, her unborn baby, and the poor, innocent, ragged, unidentified stranger to the gallows. The man who had kisses for Julia Schmidt and bullets for the one he should have loved and cherished most has forfeited all claims to go on living on this earth. Deliver to the clerk a verdict of death. Send Carl Wanderer to the gallows. He isn't fit to live. When we examined you, one or two of you said you would hate to vote a death verdict, but you promised you would if the evidence demanded it, and we took you at your word. You said you would send him to the gallows if that punishment would fit. There is abundant proof of this miserable creature's guilt. You know, as well as I do, that he has violated every law of God or man. He deserves death. Even death is too good for him. Send him to the rope. Don't weaken. Give him the punishment he deserves. Hang him. With closing arguments complete, Judge Pam gave his instructions to the jury. He listed five possible verdicts they could find. Guilty with the death penalty. Guilty with life imprisonment. Guilty with a term of years. Insanity. Or not guilty. Now, I charge you to start upon your deliberations. Render your verdict as your conscience dictates, Judge Pam told the jury. While most of the observers expected the jury to return a quick, guilty verdict, Carl seemed unmoved. As apathetic as he had been throughout the trial, he seemed to appreciate this was his moment in the sun. With a crisp crease to his pressed trousers, a new shirt striped with green and white, a brown silk pocket square on his jacket, his cuffs popped, and a clean shave, he exuded confidence he hadn't often displayed at the trial. He was the center of attention, and he was going to enjoy it as long as it lasted. With cold winds out on the street and the suspected quick verdict, the murder fans stayed in their seats during the evening supper recess, lest they lose their spot. Like at the theater, they waited for the next act. The jury retired to their jury room around 5 o'clock in the evening. They were to vote to elect a foreman and then begin deliberations. They were told supper would be brought in if a verdict was not reached in quick order. The jury room wasn't the only place Carl's guilt was being deliberated. Longtime court watchers all felt that Carl would have his neck stretched by Thanksgiving. Carl's female admirers, though, all vouched for his charm, if not his character or innocence. The war must have damaged him, they claimed. A man in his right mind could never do the things he had done. He had to be found insane, the women thought. As the debates raged, Carl sat in the courtroom until around 8 o'clock, when Judge Pam ordered him taken back to his cell. Bailiffs escorted Carl from the courtroom. Stopping at the doorway, he turned to admire his admirers. 
A smile crossed his lips. He was a main attraction. The absence of a verdict seemed to be of secondary importance to Carl. Wanderer might not have had a smile on his face had he heard the rumors that were emanating from the jury room. Nine jurors stood for his conviction, with three holding him insane. Near midnight, the jury asked if the judge would allow them to peruse a copy of Wanderer's confession. Not certain if that was a good sign or not, Assistant State's Attorney O'Brien objected to the request, and Judge Pam concurred. While the confession had been read to the jury by Coroner Hoffman during the trial, it hadn't been entered into evidence. The jury would need to render a verdict with only their memory of the testimony regarding the confession. Defense Attorney George Gunther opined on the deliberations lasting longer than many expected. The fact that there is a deadlock leads me to believe that the question of the death penalty is not involved in the deliberations of the jury. The fact that they asked to see Wander's confession also leads me to believe that they have doubts about it. Offering the glasses half-full perspective for the prosecution, O'Brien said, You can't tell. Passing a death sentence on a man is serious business, and their deliberations may be protracted because the jurors desire to go over every detail before they send Wanderer to the gallows. Meanwhile, the jury continued its deliberations all the way to 3 o'clock in the morning before going to bed in the criminal courts building. Court was called back into session the next morning, and the jurors resumed their deliberations. A well-rested and unconcerned Carl stepped into the courtroom. His eyes scanned the back of the room to ensure that all eyes were on him. They were. Carl alternated between chatting with his attorneys, scanning the room, or playing with wicker plucked from his chair. The wait dragged on. Finally, word came. After 23 hours of deliberations, the jury had arrived at a verdict. The bailiffs led the 12 men back into the courtroom. Carl and his attorneys stood at attention. The murder fans held their collective breaths. Have you reached a verdict? Judge Pam asked of the jury. We have, stated the jury foreman. Thomas Lavin, clerk of the court, boomed his baritone voice to the back of the courtroom as he read the verdict. We find the defendant... Guilty as charged. A roar of approval went up in the courtroom before the next words sucked all of the air out of the room and fixed his sentence at 25 years imprisonment. Carl stood straight with his chest puffed out. An exhale came after he heard that he had cheated the gallows. He took a breath through his open mouth but betrayed no emotions. A bailiff escorted him from the court amid a clamor from the crowd and pops from photographer's flashbulbs. A guilty verdict is typically viewed as a good thing by prosecutors, a bad thing by defendants and defense attorneys, and not normally commented on by presiding judges. The Wanderer verdict challenged all of those stereotypes. In addressing the court after the verdict was announced, Judge Hugo Pam gave the jury a very public dressing down. A grievous error. You call him a wife murderer, and you say that he shall pay with 25 years imprisonment? A regrettable error. And mind you, I don't want to be in the position of criticizing a jury. You have erred. You told me that you believed him insane, but that you were afraid an insanity verdict would not have kept him locked up. Now you find him sane. Why, men, I would have sent him away for so long a time that he would never kill again. Assistant State's Attorney O'Brien was even more blunt. 
What absurdity. What ineptitude. They found him guilty of murdering his beautiful young wife, the trusting woman who was about to become a mother, and they give him 25 years? What fallacy. What foolishness. In a procedural move, Judge Pam asked the defense if they intended to appeal. I do not at this time want to make a motion for a new trial. I would like time to think about it. A somewhat stunned defense attorney, Benedict Short, told the court. Reporters clamored behind Carl, looking for a quote. I knew they couldn't crack me. I owe everything to Ben Short. He told me not to worry. I knew I'd never swing. The 25-year sentence could be shortened to 13 years and 9 months if Carl gained credit for good behavior while in the penitentiary. The 25-year-old wife killer would still have a long life ahead of him and be eligible for release from jail a few months after his 39th birthday. The jurors could not have been less popular. The public was not happy. Though the judge had forcefully rebuked the jury in discharging them from their service, now it was time for the press to exact its pound of flesh. Reporters swarmed the jurors as they left the courthouse. The jury foreman, George Thorpe, took the brunt of the anger as he spoke for his fellow jurors and allowed most of them to make a silent escape. We decided the confession was forced from Wanderer by Sergeant Norton. We did not believe for a minute the story told in the confession. Also, the state did not present enough evidence as regards the ownership of the two revolvers. We didn't know whose gun was whose. Some of us were afraid if we found him insane, he would be committed to an asylum for a year or two and then be released. We didn't want that. We finally decided he was sane. Some thought 14 years would be sufficient. Some wanted life. We compromised on 25 years. The compromise verdict was decried in the papers. While not unheard of in the day, especially at the beginning of a trial, a Chicago Daily Tribune editor went so far as to not only print a picture of the jury in the lead story, he also printed the names and home addresses for all 12 men of the jury. Those that had followed the trial raved about the job done by attorneys Short and Gunther for the defense. Their strategy of admitting nothing while offering several other viable theories was said to have confused the jury. A veteran court clerk commented, That weird defense that denied everything and claimed but little so befuddled the brains of those jurors that they could not decide what was evidence and what was not. They were all mixed up. They didn't know what to do. Perhaps the most disheartening comment, striking at human frailty, came from juror George Conine. The verdict was inconsistent and a compromise. I was for a life sentence. I was convinced of Wanderer's guilt all along. I regret I didn't stick. When the judge sent to us near 5 o'clock Friday evening, asking if the jury was deadlocked, the foreman sent back where there would soon be a verdict. Then we compromised on the 25-year sentence. We're all human. I suppose we just wanted to get home. Not to be left out in displays of righteous indignation, Ropes O'Brien and Sergeant Norton met to discuss a plan to prosecute Wanderer for the murder of the ragged stranger. Telling of that future trial, O'Brien said, The evidence will be practically the same, but the jury will be different. I would sooner try Wanderer before a jury impaneled from the seasoned criminals in the county jail with the expectation of getting a just verdict than arraign him before the men who gave the last verdict. I do not as a rule criticize the action of a jury, but I cannot conceive how any right-thinking man could place a premium upon murder by recommending leniency to the extent of imposing a 25-year sentence for a triple murder. The verdict suggests 
human life is the cheapest commodity in the community. It was an asinine finding. Not disappointing with what one would expect from a Chicago cop, Sergeant Norton was blunt in his statements. He should have swung. That was the poorest decision I could remember in the history of the criminal court. They should have had a woman's jury to try that white killer. Women could certainly have done no worse, and the chances are they could have done much better. That bird should have swung if ever a man should. The only reason he didn't get the death verdict was because a bunch of blockheads were sworn in as jurors. They were a bunch of know-nothings. Even Carl's attorney and the beneficiary of the verdict had a hard time rationalizing it. George Gunther confirmed what others had said and felt. If Wanderer is guilty, the only penalty commensurate with a crime is hanging. Carl Wanderer, said to be dressed as if you were going out for a stroll down the boulevard, was back in the courtroom of Judge Hugo Pam to be formally sentenced for the murder of his wife. Appearing happy and carefree, Carl smiled broadly as he entered the court. Judge Pam lamented the circumstances and the law as it was. I still don't see how any jury could find this man guilty of the crime with which he was charged and sentence him only to a short time in the penitentiary in punishment. I have no alternative, though, but to impose a sentence voted by the jurors in this case. Under the law, then, and under the verdict of the jury, I sentence you to 25 years in the penitentiary. Court reporters crowded Carl to get his opinion of the sentence. He basked in his good fortune before he made a bold claim that would likely negate said good fortune. His mouth, again, was his downfall. I couldn't criticize it. 25 years in the pen? That means 14 years if I'm good, doesn't it? Well, I don't feel elated or depressed about it. I didn't pay any attention to the trial at all until my mother-in-law took the stand. Say, she was more than fair to me. She was wonderful. And Charlie Johnson, my father-in-law... And my brother-in-law, Carl, they were all wonderful. I'll tell you what, if my mother-in-law is dissatisfied with the verdict, I'll ask for a new trial. I couldn't bear to think she feels bad about justice having been miscarried or anything. She's been more than a mother to me. Reporters raced to the Ravenswood home of Eugenia Johnson to inform her of Carl's comments. Yes, I was a mother to him. I was very fond of him. I have spent a sleepless, terrible night. Deep in my heart, right along, I have felt he was guilty of Ruth's murder. The jury should have voted to hang him. Yes, that would have been the only thing. I don't want to take anybody's life, but the penalty for such guilt as his should have been death. I think he will get justice somewhere else now. I think God will punish him somehow. As for me, being satisfied with the verdict, I have nothing more to say than that. The Chicago Daily Tribune published a daily column called The Voice of the People that printed letters to the editor by their readers. The voice was loud and angry as the people were not happy, one citizen wrote. In 99 out of every 100 Chicago homes, the absorbing topic of conversation is the verdict in the case of the murderer, Carl Wanderer. People everywhere are asking if it is possible that there can be a zone of twilight justice for murderers. There are prisoners at Joliet sentenced for 20 years because of burglary or embezzlement, and Carl Wanderer sentenced for only 25 years for the triple murder of his wife, unborn baby, and the ragged stranger? With his term as the Illinois State's attorney expiring and private practice awaiting him, McClay Hoyne decided he was done with Wanderer and punted the trial of the ragged stranger to whomever his successor would be. 
The verdict at Wanderer's first trial was a disgrace, and Wanderer should be tried on the other indictment, that charging him with the murder of the unidentified boy he used as a dupe. But I cannot assure the public that he could be tried from the 30 days of office left to me. Short and Gunther were next to excuse themselves from the case, as they deemed their work complete. After several days without an attorney volunteering to step forward and take up Carl's defense, the presiding judge put it plainly, It is a serious matter. If the defendant is again tried, under the law, he must be represented by counsel. No matter how disagreeable, some lawyer must act for him. Carl sat in the penitentiary for the next few months until the new state's attorney settled into office. Carl was familiar with the new state's attorney as he had been the judge that had originally thwarted Wanderer's attempts to plead guilty and receive a quick hanging. Former Chief Justice Robert Crow was the new state's attorney and he had named Edward Day as his first assistant. It was Day who made the formal announcement that Wanderer would be tried for the murder of the ragged stranger. In a prelude to the major hurdle Carl would need to overcome at his next trial, the prosecutor stated, Public sentiment demands Wanderer be tried again. Such public sentiment would ensure that there was no compromise verdict at the next trial. On the next, The Mystery of the Ragged Stranger, Getting to Know More Strangers. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Edgar Ramos, Matt Schwerha, and everyone at Chicago Now for their help in producing this podcast. I'm going to leave you with a song called The Butcher's Boy by Buell Casey. This song is being heard courtesy of June Apple Recordings in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Enjoy. Took his knife and cut her.
Oh, no. 